0: I want to talk to you this morning about Diplopia. Now, I know that some of you probably know what Diplopia is. Do any of you know what Diplopia is? No? Oh, I love it when I can pull one of those out of my hat. You know, it's like, ah, look, a new rabbit. I know, it's a gimmick, it's a trick, it's a game that I play where I take the same thing that we have to study day in and day out. It's like potatoes. All you have is potatoes. And now a chef, a master chef's job is to make those potatoes interesting and exciting and to make you salivate at the thought of the potatoes, even though you've eaten them three times a day for 3,000 years. A good chef is one who makes those potatoes appealing so that you want to eat them. Not because you have to, but you want to. So my, I see my job as like that. So when I come up with these things like diplopia, there's a reason for it. It's because I'm taking the same old stuff and I'm trying to make it appealing and trying to give it a new face and a new smell and a new taste and inspire a new desire in you and, and hopefully generate in you a valuation for potatoes, <laughs> even though you've had them so many times before. I know, Lori, you're smacking your lips right now thinking about those French fries. Diplopia <laughs> is the technical term for double vision. Eye tests for glasses can give us double vision from different lenses on each eye. If you've had an eye test, you know sometimes they have that machine, goes, and you'll get two, and it's all of a sudden, the image is fuzzy. It's, it's, you actually have two images. So it's like, no, that's not it. And then and then they get that, get rid of that. And it can go vertically, horizontally. You know, it can go all these different ways. So they have a lot of different lenses that they use. And that's an idea of what double vision is if you've never had it any other way. For those of you who are wondering, double vision is not a good thing. It's not something that we aspire to. It's like, oh yeah, I wish I had double vision. You don't really. It may disrupt a person's balance, movement, and or reading abilities. It's often one of the first signs that they find, meaning doctors find, of a systemic disease to a muscular or neurological process. So what happens is if there's a disease in, in the muscles around the eyes or in this whole structure, of seeing, this whole seeing structure, or in the neurological part of the seeing. It's not just muscular. There's also this neurological part as well. And they can tell you if there is a problem somewhere in that system if you develop double vision. They can track it down. I'm going to be suggesting that we work to develop a kind of psychological diplopia to help us with the personal application of our work. Because really the bottom line for me is I'm here for one reason, one reason only, and that is to apply this work practically to my own life. The reason you're here is hopefully to do the same thing, and hopefully I may be able to share some ideas with you about how to do that and present them in a way that gives you an appetite for them. So I'm here to generate or create an appetite in you, an appetite for this work, an appetite for the ideas of this work, an appetite, as it were, for the meat and potatoes of esotericism. And so that's why I picked Diplopia. Remember, this work that I talk about has to become your work. It's pointless and powerless if it remains Gurdjieff's work or Ospensky's work or Nicole's work or my work. You must make it yours through your own effort. There is no other way. There is no other way. Don't believe me. Don't take my word for that. Look and see what you have of lasting value that you got out of a book that you didn't apply and actually make your own. In the book, it does no one any good. You read the book, so what? How many books have you read? Forget about it. And what good did it do? Very little. I mean, Lori's to the point where she just buys them now and puts them on the shelf. She doesn't bother reading them. Why bother reading them? If I read them, I hope what you've seen is that you don't have any follow through, that you're a quitter. Oh, I guess I told you this already. Oops, sorry. It's okay. A reminder is good. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's another thing, you know. It's It's a reminder. There are a number of applications of psychological diplopia. One such is seeing the difference between knowing and observing. Everybody thinks that they observe. I got another email this morning from somebody who they observe themselves. They observe that they have this problem or that problem. The problem doesn't change, but they observe that they have it. They observe that they're powerless about it. And that's good. Then they remember themselves. They remember that that's the way they are. It's like, okay, what can I say? One time I gave a talk in Redondo Beach, and a woman quoted something that I said after the talk. We were down in this. For some reason, they had coffee and you know stuff afterwards, and people got together and talked. And- You know, they always want to come up to whoever's speaking and, you know, oh blah, 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 say whatever they say. And so this person said something, quoted something that I'd said during the talk. Well, I knew I hadn't said that. I knew it. I knew absolutely that I had not said that. Well, back in those days, we made little cassette tapes. We made a a tape of the talk. And then we had a little copy machine. And right there on the spot, we would make copies of the tapes and sell them. Well, she had purchased the tape, and so she pulled out the tape and stuck it in a tape machine and played it. And all of a sudden, I realized what a huge gap there was between what I knew and what I'd said I'd said, what I thought I'd said, or what I knew I'd said. She was exactly right. I had said exactly what she said that I had said. And I knew beyond any doubt whatsoever that I had not said that. But when I heard my own voice speaking it, it was like, well, I can tell you that it was a huge shock. Just a huge shock. I had not observed what I'd said. Now, this is the difference between knowing and observing. I had not observed what I'd said. I knew what I said, but I had not observed what I'd said. What happened next was more important, more important than that. I got it. I didn't assume that I had observed myself. I didn't flinch. I looked at it and I went, oh my God, I was absolutely asleep. I was asleep. I was sleep talking. You know, there's sleep walking. Well, there's also sleep talking. And if our lips are moving, Nine out of ten times, we're sleep talking. I saw that I was wrong, but I also saw that I was asleep, that I was mechanical. This happened over 30 years ago, but it is as clear to me as if it happened five minutes ago. It was a conscious shock. Observing what you say from a certain emotion is vastly different from knowing that you were negative. Huge difference. Oh, I, I know I'm negative. Yes, I can see that. I'm observing that I'm negative. No. This is not the same thing that the work is talking about. We must learn to develop what I'm calling psychological diplopia, observing from two centers instead of one. When we work, our observing as we are in our condition is from one center. It's not true proper self-observation. Proper self-observation must include at least two centers to get any kind of an effect, any kind of a positive effect that will help you transform or develop. As we are, observing from all centers at the same time is simply out of the question. Just forget about it. Okay, if I were to ask you, how many centers do you have? Well, how many centers do you have? There's a number. Okay, seven. Good. So five, three, four, seven. Seven. You have seven centers. What are they? Well, if you don't know how many you had, you don't know what they are. You know that there are seven. Do you know what the seven are? The uh, instinctive moving. Instinctive and moving. That's two. Because you're going to end up short if you come to the end of that. You're going to end up one short. Intellectual emotional, higher intellectual. <sighs> See, I'm not here for no reason. And the people do listen. And they do hear. And some people do remember. And that's good. And that's what it's about. This is what it takes. We have to do this. We have to make this effort. And eventually, if you have enough spaced repetition, it will at least lodge in the intellectual center. Whether it goes anywhere else, well, I don't know. But at least that's a start. A sower goes out to sow. And he sows a seed. And it falls where it falls. that's that. Well, our current level of being, our current level of consciousness, simply does not support observing from all seven centers at the same time. When you're in your sex center, I'll guarantee you, you're not observing anything except what's in the sex center. You're just not, I and mean, you're just run by it. In instinctive center, same thing, very difficult. In moving center, pretty much the same thing. Very difficult for us to observe these centers. So there must be something else that we can do. We can work on observing our emotional and intellectual centers together. Yes, but why? What might we gain? This is always the question, isn't it? Well, what am I going to get from this? was like the question about meditation. Well, what are the benefits? What am I going to get from this? So what might we gain? Consciousness. That's what we might gain. The Philosopher's Stone. You remember what the Philosopher's Stone is? The Philosopher's Stone was a legendary alchemical substance said to be capable of turning base metals like lead into gold or silver. That was the Philosopher's Stone. Something that they could mix alchemically with lead and turn it into gold or silver. Of course, this is all metaphorical. This is not about outer things. This is about taking the base substance of animal man, which is like lead, low, heavy, pointless, thick, dull. Yeah, you ever put a shine on lead? (laughs) I mean, you can, but it doesn't last long. And lead is soft and impressionable and heavy and thick and dense just like the animal part of us, and you try and refine it to something higher, something more precious, like gold or silver, you're lost. You're absolutely lost, there's no way to do it, but there's a way to do it. Is there a way to do it physically? Yes, there's a way to do it physically. Do we know what that way is? Well, I could tell you what it is, but that doesn't mean you can do it. That doesn't mean that any of us can do it, but it can be done. This universe is made of one substance, vibrating at different rates, different frequencies and we don't know that. That's all just theory for us. And so we don't talk about it much because what's the point? You're not going to do anything with it except get in your imagination and become twice as fit for hell as you already are, and you don't really need to do that. I mean, why work in that direction where well, you could work in another direction? If you've observed yourself properly, you know yourself as a base metal with the possibility of being transformed into something finer, something more precious. You know that because you have begun the process. You have begun the alchemical process. There's heat involved. There's fire involved. There's light involved. There is the substance of your being involved. There's the substance of your personality, your false personality involved. It acts as fuel that gets burned up to generate the heat that can begin to transform you out of a base metal and into a more precious metal. You know, esoteric teachings talk about this all the time. The purest gold burns in the hottest fire. They say the, the crucible for silver, and I can't remember the rest of it, but there's something else for gold. The furnace for gold, the crucible for silver, whatever it is. That's the idea. They're not talking about gold and silver. They're talking about what we must do in order to develop into what we could be from what we actually are, what we are, what life has made us, life's purpose, the animal thing. We could be something else. A dog or a cat can't do this. You can. You can do something they can't do. You have a potential. You have a higher ceiling, as it were, than they do. They're stuck. Mating season, they mate. They're hungry, they eat. They're thirsty, they drink. That's it. They don't have choices about that. They just instinctively have to do it. They're bound. They're bound by the physical laws. You can get above those physical laws. You can actually transform yourself and get yourself under fewer and fewer laws. You can become free from all of those animal things, that is what this work is about. Becoming free, freeing ourselves from this bondage that dogs and cats and cows and frogs are in. Most of the race isn't doing that, but that doesn't mean it can't be done. You know, Most people are not Lance Armstrong. That doesn't mean Lance Armstrong doesn't have a bigger heart, bigger set of lungs, didn't develop all those things. Just because most people don't doesn't mean people can't. Because one person does shows you that it is possible for a person to do that. You may not be able to do it to the same degree he did. You may not have the time. You didn't start as young. You may not be doing the same thing. There's a lot of things involved with that. And so it is with raising your consciousness or transforming your being. Consciousness gives us what is for us in our ordinary state a very strange feeling. You notice that when you wake up how weird it feels. <laughs> it's like, wow, all this was here just a moment ago and I didn't see it. I didn't know it. And now I know it. Wow. Wow. It's such a strange feeling, because what it does is it lays right alongside of your mechanicalness, your sleep. Wow, this is really weird. And of course, there are varying degrees of that. If while in a certain emotional state, you could observe what you said, you would have that deja vu that consciousness brings. And that deja vu that consciousness brings is that moment when you realize, I've said all this before. I know this rant. It's all of a sudden, you shut up. You just realize. And in mid-sentence, you just stop, because you have the shock because you have observed this state that you're in, and in the state, you are also observing what you say in that state, and you are seeing it, seeing both of those things at the same time, both of those centers at the same time, the intellectual center and the emotional center. You're feeling the state, but you're also seeing this mechanical blithering that comes in that state. This begins to suck the energy out of the negative state. That's why you stop. That's why you go, ah, never mind. Have you done that? You're in the middle of an argument, you go, never mind. Forget it. I'm an idiot. The more you do this work, the more you say that. You notice that? The more you say, I'm an idiot. Forget it. I'm an idiot. You know, it's kind of nice. At first, it sucks having to admit you're an idiot. But after a while, it actually gets to be light and fun. Never mind. I'm an idiot. You just kind of smile. You can't even wipe the smile off your face. It's so light. The lift is so tangible, so visceral, that you can't not smile about it. You just look kind of goofy. And here you are in an argument with somebody. All of a sudden, you smile and go, never mind. I'm an idiot. You're right. You walk away. Or you do whatever it is you do. So this begins to suck the negative energy out of the state. It gives you the formidable power of disbelieving your mechanical self. That's really what it is. All of a sudden you catch yourself being mechanical. You see it clearly. You hear it. You see it. You feel it. And you stop. It gives you the power to not believe in the mechanical self, to not believe what it's saying. What it has always said. Okay, let's just take as an example your father watching the news. You know what I'm talking about? Do you have an Archie Bunker experience where your father talked to the radio or the television? Okay, that's what I'm talking about. You see it in other people, but you need to see it in yourself. Well, this Diplopia, this psychological Diplopia that I'm talking about is exactly what you need to do that. As we said last week, every negative emotion, every negative state, links us with the small mechanical negative parts of centers. And most of them are in the intellectual center for us. This is a real problem. The intellectual center is jammed up. we got to get something happening here first before we can ever approach the emotional center and hope to cleanse it of negative emotions. So this is why we start in the intellectual center. This is what we've got. We have fallen so far down the ladder of consciousness as a race that the only thing we've got left is this screwdriver that adjusts something in the intellectual center. We don't even have a tool for the emotional center yet. So that's where we are. I'm sorry to have to say it, but that's where we are. People are varying degrees, obviously, different levels of that, but mostly that's where the work finds us. This is what makes us sound like ranting parrots on crack. I love that. <laughs> when I wrote that, I, thought, I started to laugh and I yelled up to Connie, God, this is really great. Look at this, like ranting parrots on crack, because that's exactly what it sounds like to me. I'll hear myself doing it and I'll see it and I'm in the state and I see it and the two centers just at the same time line up and it's like, uh I just stop. It's literally like a ranting parrot on crack. Just I know you know what I'm talking about. I can see it by the look on your face. It's when we fall into a repetitive negative state. Observe the rhetoric while you observe the emotion. There's more to it than just that, but that's the beginning. As a rule, the light of consciousness dawns very slowly on our Neanderthal state of waking sleep. Very slowly. Sometimes, though, it flashes brightly, and you see yourself, hear yourself, and realize in that flash. I've said all this before so many times that it's actually nauseating. (laughs) It's just (laughs) nauseating. You, the other day, heard yourself talking to your sister when she talked about coming to meditation. You felt yourself being fearful and negative. Maybe you didn't say, oh, this is a negative state, but you felt it. And then you heard yourself saying all these things. And that was a flash. And for you, that stuck because you told me about it. So this is what I'm talking about. Those kinds of experiences. We need to cultivate those kinds of experiences. And you can cultivate them. They don't have to just flash and come accidentally. You can have something to do with it you have to make effort. You have to work. You have to know what you're doing. That's this psychological diplopia. The trick at that moment is to not begin our ritual of beating ourselves about the head and shoulders with monotonous regularity. We must be observing ourselves properly or we fall into a second and deeper negative state of self-abuse, which does no one any good except the false personality which uses that to boost and blow up the ego even more and fill yourself with pharisaical pride and self-love that you are beating yourself up for your transgression. Oh, please. Will this never end? No, it will never end unless you end it. It's not going to end. It's going to go on and on and on ad nauseum unless you end it yourself. This work is about increasing our awareness of ourselves. Now, it's very good at increasing our awareness of other people, I've noticed. Very good at that. Like Christians, become the most critical beings on earth. Have you ever noticed how critical Christians can be? Even Christians notice it. The more enlightened Christians notice it. I was reading Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, the other day. Oswald Chambers was a Christian preacher in England. Brilliant, brilliant man, but also a spiritual giant, in my opinion and he talked about the critical spirit and how it is absolutely impossible to get union with anything higher in a critical temper. And he said, absolutely right. But he observed that. He observed those centers working in himself. There's no other way he could have known that. No other way. And the man had the integrity to not just read it out of a book and then repeat it. He had the integrity to know for himself that it was true. And how you know that he knew that it was true is when you read it, you can feel it. You can actually feel it. You can feel his force, even though he's been dead, decades, scores of years, you can still feel it. I can still feel it. Other people can still feel it. So this work is about increasing our awareness of ourselves. This means increasing our consciousness. And quite frankly, I will tell you right up front, as I've told you for years and years and years, this can be painful. If it's not painful, you're probably not doing it. That's the bottom line on this. Someone sent me an email the other day about this saint. And she was talking about, oh, how wonderful that God's embrace of the soul was. And how joyful and blissful and blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah, that's all true. But there's something after that. And that's the part where you get to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross. And it can be painful. It's not for everybody. You remember we had somebody leave one time. Oh, it was like 25 years ago. Stood up in the middle of a meeting. You people are a bunch of death to selfers. And if we don't crucify ourselves, then you'll crucify us. And they (laughs) marched out. You remember that? We just all went, okay, well, (laughs) you got to be in your bonnet, buddy. That's just the way it goes sometimes. You know, people suddenly realize what this is about. Just like, remember the rich young man. He goes to Jesus and he says, oh, master, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And he said, well obey the commandments. He says, which ones? So he, he names about four of them. He said, well, I've done those ever since I was a child. And he said, okay, well, and then Jesus looked at him and he, and he loved him. He had compassion for him. He realized that this guy was stuck in his self-love. So he gave him the jolt that he needed. He said, okay, well, in that case, if you've done all that, then here's what you do. Go and sell everything that you have. Give it all to the poor. Come and follow me. and You'll have a treasure in heaven. The man was crestfallen and walked away. And Jesus let him walk away because he wasn't ready. You know, I love the idea of this being a cult. I love the idea. Because a cult, the definition of a cult is something that is really easy to get into and almost impossible to get out of. The truth about this place is it's really hard to get in here, but it's really easy to get out. But the witch hunters never realize what they're doing because they're witch hunters, which, of course, is a cult. Witch hunting is a cult. Inquisitioning is a cult. Why do you think they talk about it all the time? Because that's who they are. It's just that simple. We've through the cult thing 20-some you know, years ago. We went through that and just laughed. And we finally, remember how we used to take it so seriously. Oh, it was just awful. And we were going to try and prove to people. Then we finally realized there's no proving anything to anybody. People believe precisely what they wish to believe. And nothing more and nothing less. And once you realize that and you have that freedom, you're like the horse. You laugh at fear. You eat up the ground that's in front of you the sword the saber the spear the quiver rattle against your side and you don't care you just charge into the fray courageous it's like that's the freedom that you get from this work that's the freedom you get from realizing you're a living machine among all these other machines and they're doing the only thing that they can do (laughs) everything happens the only way it can happen and even when you begin to wake up then everything happens the only way it can happen it just happens better and you agree with it. That's all. You wake up, you simply agree with what's happening. You stop resisting it and fighting it. I know that may sound like insanity to some people, but that's not my problem. I'm not here to sound sane. Because if I start sounding normal, I'm useless to you. Absolutely useless. When I can tell you what everyone else tells you, and when I start sounding sane, this is pointless. It's time to leave. Or you're growing. When my insanity starts to make sense to you, you're growing. Because it's not my insanity. All I'm doing is channeling or being a conduit for this work, for esoteric ideas. This is not James Parkinson. This is the work. This is what it says. This is not what I say. Well, it's painful because the light of consciousness changes us. And we resist change like stubborn mules sometimes, clinging to our habits, our patterns, our self-justifications, our internal accounts, and most of all, the self-love. Esoteric teachings inform us we are what we are because we're not properly conscious. And yet, in the state of not being properly conscious, in that state we are ascribing to ourselves full consciousness. And we're not. And this is what esoteric teachings tell us. And now it is for us to realize that. Now we have been told that. And we've been told how to see that for ourselves. And we've been told that there is no way that it's going to be meaningful to you until you see it yourself. You must see this for yourself. And there's only one way, proper self-observation. And I'm trying to tell you about psychological diplopia, seeing two centers at the same time, which will enable you to observe yourself properly. When I realized I had no idea what I'd said and swore that I'd never said that, I had a shock. Remember I told you about Redondo Beach? I saw my machine-like sleep clearly, realizing at the same moment that I thought I'd been observing myself. I thought I was awake. And I realized in an instant I was not awake. I thought I was and I was wrong. We have an innate dislike of being mechanical people. You're a machine. Oh yeah. We resist it. We just have this innate dislike for it. Like some people have a fear of water or heights or snakes or spiders. We just have this innate thing. And we all share this innate dislike for being mechanical people. Sometimes in a phone conversation, I become aware that I'm saying something I've said over and over in the past. Same kind of thing. I'll be right in the middle of saying it, and I just stop. So never mind. And I smile to myself because I realize that I'm in a certain state. And I realize that that state produces these words. It's just like putting a record on a phonograph or a CD in a CD player. Not many people have records or phonographs anymore. It's outdated. Unless you're in Europe. In Europe, it's a big thing. But here, not so much. There are people who won't listen to anything other than vinyl. They're purists. They say the digital reproduction just isn't the same. Me, I guess it doesn't matter. I got other fish to fry, (laughs) as it were. So that's not that important to me. When I stop and observe the emotional state that realization puts me in, it's unpleasant because I realize I've fallen into a mechanical state and I'm repeating words. But at the same time, there is another part of me that is separated from that. And it smiles because it just won some ground. It just let a little more light into the darkness. And it knows that that's the name of the game. Just a little here and a little there. Just a little light here and a little light there. And the darkness is dispelled, dispersed, evaporated, eliminated. These moments are painful, humiliating, and valuable. Learn to live with diplopia by sharpening your double vision rather than having a fuzzy focus. Now we see as in a mirror darkly. We've got a very fuzzy focus. We look and we see ourselves in the mirror and then we turn away and forgot what we saw. We need to develop work memory, and that's really what that means. Don't forget what you saw. Put it into work memory. The way to put it into work memory is a good, sharp focus with as much light as you can bring to that mirror when you look at yourself. When you see yourself in that way, you'll remember it. Just like I remember what happened over 30 years ago in Redondo Beach at the Masonic Lodge. I can remember exactly what it was like. I can remember the light in the room. I can remember the person who said it to me. I remember who was standing next to her. Why? Because I was there because I was present, because I woke up. While you're in the negative state, use it to your advantage. Don't let negative states use you anymore. Begin to use them to your advantage. They're fuel. They're fuel for your fire of transformation. They're fuel for your alchemical fire, for your retort, for your Bunsen burner, to get you heated up so that you can begin to alter your internal structure, to begin to transform from this leaden thing into something more precious and finer, some more refined. Observe the state. Observe your words. Observe your gestures. Don't let anything get away from you. Observe your facial expressions. You can feel your facial expressions. What did I tell you last night at dinner when you were preparing your food? your mouth moving in a certain way, and i laughed because I' noticed this about Patty for a long time in the past couple months i've been noticing that if I'm in the kitchen doing something, I notice my mouth doing a certain thing I feel it I don't know what it looks like because I've never looked at it in a mirror, but I know the feeling I know what and I know what it is, and I know the state that goes with it and it's just kind of comical, and so I literally relax all the small muscles around my mouth in that moment I stop right there I stop, and I relax all the small muscles and i make note of the emotional state that comes with that there's an emotional state with discovering that it's a negative state of disappointment i <laughs> did it again and so i just relax all the muscles and i use it i'm suggesting you do that observe your expressions they're all a family and they all have a family resemblance the gestures the facial expressions the words the feelings they all belong to a family with a family resemblance and the same last name learn the family resemblance because this is what you have become in this world. And you must see this for yourself. This is what it means to develop psychological diplopia, where we can observe two centers at once. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work, and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.